You're listening to Road to CEO, nothing but in-depth interviews with executives about their journeys as CEO. I'm your host, Will Marlowe, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the show. We're here today with Brock Boyd, CEO of CMI Careers, which he founded in 1998. Based in Tyson's, Virginia, CMI has helped companies conduct over 3,000 successful searches to fill top sales and sales leadership positions in technology firms. Brock has been a CEO for 23 years, and today he's going to tell us what he's learned in that role. Brock, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thank you. So why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about your business? What is CMI Careers? So we're an executive search firm. Our focus is filling sales and sales leadership positions for technology companies. As you mentioned, um, the majority of our clients are smaller uh, companies. So let's say between um, 50 and 500 to 1,000 employees is the, uh, you know, a technology or software company with between 50 and let's say 1,000 employees would be the, the sweet spot of who we work with most often. And we're filling sales and sales leadership positions within those companies. So why do people need to work with a company like yours? Is it, you know, I, I'm a CEO of a company and um, why would I work with a, a company like yours rather than just trying to to find all my own positions and fill fill all my own roles in my company? So there can be a few different reasons that that someone will, will uh, put a position out to a search firm like ours, but um, the biggest reason is they want to be guaranteed that they're they're getting access to the best talent available in the marketplace, mm -hmm. right? So most likely way to do that, or, or let's say if, if nothing else, a great insurance plan is to put that search out to a search firm like ours. And then, you know, we're bringing you talent as well as whatever you're developing on your own. And in the end, you hire the best person. And if it mm -hmm. comes through us, uh, then the company's going to pay us a fee for that. And if they find, you know, that person on their own, uh, the, the person who they end up making the offer to on their own, then um, then they don't owe us that fee, but either way, they got access to the highest number of top talent available in the marketplace today. Yeah. And I asked that question, but I already knew the answer because I, I found, so I actually, I expanded my company into, into another country. And, um, so I now operate in two different countries and I found, especially with the sec, with the, the new country, which, you know, I didn't know enough. I didn't know anything really about when I started. I mean, I, I knew people there and I thought I knew what I was doing, but really when it came to finding talent, I did not have access to it in that, in that other, in that other company. And so I think, you know, the, you know, that was really eye opening for me, how working with that type of a business really just, you know, erases that disadvantage. You know, you don't, you, you know, you, you no longer need to, to, to think about the fact that you don't have deep roots. I mean, cause no business as they grow is going to have deep roots in every community. So, you know, as you, as you expand, I think I'm sure that a business like yours becomes truly essential for, you know, for that kind of growth to find the top talent. Yep. Yeah. Finding and hiring top talent 
is challenging. Uh, and if it weren't challenging, then we wouldn't have a, a job or a company, yeah. but uh, sure. it's challenging. And so, um, you know, that's our area of focus and we make it less challenging for ourselves by, by having a, a tight enough range of what we recruit for um, that we end up developing relationships and industry knowledge and so on that, that makes it a little bit easier for us. But no matter what, it's always challenging and that's why we exist. Yeah. Okay. So this, this show is really about CEO growth also and what, you know, um, what kind of, of lessons people would learn as a CEO. And so I want to ask some questions about that. Did you always want to be a CEO? No, I would say I definitely didn't. Um, it was a little bit more of, um, well, I'm going to separate into, you know, entrepreneur and, you know, start a business. Yes. I kind of always, I had a long period of time where that was a, a goal of mine. But being a CEO and running a business, I view as, as slightly different. And, um, and so um, there, there are certain people who are, who are born with the inclination and the desire and sometimes the, the talents required um, to be a, a CEO specifically and to, to run the operations of an organization. And I would not say that that was always me. Um, mm -hmm. That it was a little bit more of like, I did always want to start a business and be an entrepreneur and in order to hire employees that turns you into a leader and a CEO. And so I was a little bit more forced into that second part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, actually that leads me to another question. You started, you have had a long career with CMI careers. Did you, were you CEO of any other company before you started CMI careers? No. Um, in fact, I would actually say I was never technically a manager of a single person ever <laughs> prior to starting CMI. So uh, I, didn't, I didn't have any, I didn't come to the table with any management experience, that's for sure. I did have a couple of other entrepreneurial ventures, um, but I never hired any. These were things that I did completely on my own without any employees, without any team. Um, so <clears throat> I could not call myself a, a CEO prior to having my first full-time employee, which was at CMI uh, 23 years ago when I was 23 years old. I, I'm a big fan of that that methodology of training somebody, you know, just throwing them into the deep end like that. I um, so I started my career on Capitol Hill. I was I, and I was I, I became a press secretary for uh, two members of Congress, and I remember. I started off as a deputy press secretary. And in retrospect, I didn't even know what a press secretary did. I knew I wanted to be a press secretary. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what a press release was. I didn't. But I also didn't know that I didn't know what mm -hmm. any of those things were. But I remember um, there was a, you know, there was one day where um, my the press secretary couldn't be there, was out. Uh, uh, he called me and he said, um, you know, trial by fire. You've got to run the press conference. We're, you know, just, you know, do a good job. <laughs> and, uh, and so I had to, you know, try to figure out, you know, how you run a press conference and how, and and you know what, it went okay. There were a few bumps in the road, but uh, uh, but overall, I think that that whole, you know, approach to 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 a career has has served me pretty well. So I don't think there's any problem with you know somebody who real, you know somebody taking, you know, taking a job and, and learning as they go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I will say that, um, 
the fact that I had no no management experience prior to that whatsoever, it made managing, uh, you know, the very first people a little bit more exciting, to be honest, right? And mm-hmm. so it gave me a lot of um, vigor and energy to go study management. Now, yeah. um, as you would agree, I'm sure you can study management your whole life and, and um, you know, uh, it's a subject like finance. It's like the farther you push into it, the more there is to learn. But um, but anyhow, like I said, it, it gave me, I think, some enthusiasm for for learning about that because I had never done it before. So it's like, well, guess I better figure this out pretty quick. So so let's let's talk about that. So you, you've already mentioned managing people, which I think is is one of the critical things, obviously, of, of being a leader and being a, a CEO. Um, you know, since you since you mentioned uh, management of people. Um, why don't we start there? So what was, what was that like when you first started managing people? Was that, did you take to it quickly? Did you have to read books to kind of, you know, were you uncomfortable at it? You know, what, what was that experience like? No. And yes, I was definitely uncomfortable with it. And, uh, um, I did not take quickly to it. Um, I have been incredibly fortunate that I, I don't know if this was by design, but but no, it definitely wasn't by design. I don't know if this was you know sheer luck or if deep down I knew that this is how it had to be. But um, I have mostly hired people who have a pretty strong internal engine, so mm-hmm. um, they've all been pretty self motivated. Um, now they still need a lot of guidance to do their their job correctly, you know, in the beginning. Um, but I've just been incredibly fortunate. So my lack of management uh, experience and skills was made up for by the fact that I hired people who were really uh, driven. And so um, it kind of, I feel like it removed uh, some of the toughest parts of, of management for me. And instead of, if you think of like, you know, recruiting, like painting, I could, I could focus on, you know, here's how you paint the corners and, and, you know, here's how you do this, you know, the sun or a beach or whatever. I could focus on the technical aspects of it instead of making sure people are arriving to work on time and, you know, actually like doing the hard, you know, activities. Um, Once people knew what the activities were, I've been really lucky that I've hired people who generally just do those activities. And so now it's about kind of help them do those activities more efficiently. And then they, they, get to a point after a certain period of time where, you know, they, they need, they need and possibly want my assistance and guidance less and less and less. But in the beginning, I give a whole lot of guidance, but I, like I said, I've just been very fortunate in terms of the people that I've brought on board, um, not having to be the, um, you know, driver in terms of uh, Mm -hmm. whipping people into uh, shape and, and trying to uh, force feed work ethic. I'll put it that way. So, okay, so you've said something that really resonates with me. Um, one of the epiphanies that I had, um, and actually, I, I don't know if you call this, a, is it an epiphany if you learn it from somebody else? <laughs> I don't know it, if it is. It can be. I think okay. it can be. Yeah. All right. So, so you know, the great wrestler, Kale Sanderson, who I'm sure you know because know of because you and I are both wrestlers, have a, re- you know, I happen to know that you were a, a great wrestler in high school and, re- and, and in college and and I watched an interview with Kale Sanderson, who is, you know, has won more NCA titles for at Penn State than than anybody in the last decade, I think. Um, uh, and 
somebody said, how do you motivate your wrestlers? You know, how do you motivate the kids that you bring into your program? And he said that he recruits people who generally don't need motivation. You know, you, re you recruit self-motivated wrestlers. And I remember that was really mind blowing to me. It seems so obvious, but he doesn't spend his time. You know, you think of a coach giving this rousing speech and I'm sure there is something to that, but you also don't want to have to give a rousing speech every day to, uh, you know, to your stars, you know, and, and, uh, and, and as I, as I read through management books and recruiting books over the years, it, I started noticing that that was a trend in the, you know, the biggest management gurus said you recruit people who are amazing, who are self-motivated, who are, who are go-getters. And then a lot of what you're talking about, Brock falls into place. You know, is that, is that kind of what you're, what you're saying? Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it, it kind of ties in with something that I, I think is, is not a particular strength of mine, but I would say that um, if you hire the right people into your organization who, who have the right traits already, either because they were born yeah. with them or because they were, you know, um, instilled by somebody else giving those daily rousing speeches, right? Um, yeah. If you recruit those right people in, um, they will not need the, the kind of um, uh, daily push, right? Yeah. Um, they will still benefit from being held accountable and being praised in, in the most effective yeah. ways. Right. And, okay. and that is one of the things that, that also I would say is not particularly one of my natural strengths. And, and I've read about it and learned about it through management training and so on, but I don't do a particularly great job at holding people accountable at the right times in the right way, or a particularly great job in, in um, praising people at the right times in the right way. Um, but I've just been incredibly lucky that the, the people that I've hired are, are thriving despite that. Um, so, yeah, let me, okay. So let me, let me uh, grab something that you just put out there. So, uh, so you say you aren't, uh, it, it doesn't play to your natural strengths always to, to praise at the right moment or to, or to hold people accountable at, at the right moment. How have you dealt with that? Like what, what is something you've done to, I mean, you know, it's a weakness and you know, it's something that you have to do. So what is it? What have you done to, to kind of deal with that? Two things. The first is, is one that we already covered, which is that I, I think instinctually I'm looking for people who are so um, kind of self-driven um, and, and it's not just about motivation, but are, are, are so well kind of balanced in their head that you know, my lack of natural talent there is going to be less of an issue, right? Because, mm -hmm. um, uh, cause they're going to be doing this. They're going to be, you know, e either they require less praise and accountability than the average person. Yeah, actually I'll leave it at that. I, I think that mm -hmm. instinctually I'm, I'm somehow looking for that. But the second thing is, um, I, I try to make up for it by being good at, at other things. And so mm -hmm. one of those things is when, when I see, um, either an individual or the team as a whole running up against a really, really difficult challenge. That's when I'm the most likely to step in and try to through, you know, sheer force of will show this can be done and, and I'm going to do it to keep people happy, motivated, excited, and, and, you know, interested and engaged to move forward. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so it does. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I'm always interested in, in kind of understanding what, how people think about traits that are, that they know are important, but they consider to be a weakness in themselves. And, and I like, I mean, Warren Buffett would say, um, at least I think he would say, um, uh, that he focuses on the, on his strengths. You know, he's, he doesn't worry about the fact that he's not a talented musician, for example, you know, he's, he's, he's focused on allocating capital, you know, and, and, you know, when he talks about allocating capital, you know, he seems like that's, you know, that's the most important thing in the world. And I guess if you're him, it, it really is. And, um, you know, but, but it's, you know, I, I feel like it's important for CEOs to, and, and people who want to be CEOs to, you know, to probably take a lesson from that. You know, it's, you're not going to be great at everything. Um, or at least I'm not going to be great at everything. And, you know, I think it's one thing I've learned from talking to CEOs is, and maybe this isn't true for all of them, but, you know, many of the good ones are aware of things that are weaknesses on their part. You know, maybe they aren't going to fix them or they're not going to, you know, they're not going to obsess over them, but, but they're going to be aware often that, okay, this is not a strength of mine. And I think that often leads them to focus on something else. Um, maybe do a little bit of compensation for the thing that is, you know, I, I know for me, you know, there are certain things that I, um, you know, that I'm not, you know, that are, are not strengths of mine. And I have dealt with that by hiring people who, 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 you know, who have strengths that, that, you know, in those areas. I mean, that's one thing that I've done, you know, because I know I'm not going to focus on my own weaknesses. Like I'm not, I mean, in some cases I, I will, you know, certainly do enough to, you know, to, to, uh, you know, to, to get by. But what I really want to do is put somebody else in a role that is going to, you know, they're going to enjoy doing whatever that is. Yeah. You know, and you, you just uh, <clears throat> made me think of a, of a second component of what I think I do to compensate for, uh, you know, the, the lack of the ability to uh, uh, both praise and hold accountable at the right times in the right way. And that is that, um, you know, if, if, if the, the goal is to move the ball down the field to the other end zone, um, if people can move the ball part way down the field and then they get stuck and they have a problem, um, I am both pretty good at and very, mm. very willing to help solve that problem. Right. Mm. So um, that would be something uh, that I do to compensate. Mm -hmm. I think because, um, you know, I think that some people in a, in a leadership or managerial capacity might um, say, well, that's what I hired you for. So you solve mm. the problem and keep moving it down the field. Um, for me, maybe, maybe as a result of compensating for what I talked about before, I'm definitely going to jump right on the field and say, I'm going to help you solve this problem. And that's something, that's a scenario that I feel very comfortable in, mm. in terms of um, more kind of both natural skill set and one that I've built over time. Um, but also where like, I feel like I'm bringing value to, to people in that particular case. Yeah. I'm sure your team appreciates that quality. Cause I know that you know, I know there are a lot of CEOs who would probably respond in that other way where, you know, say, that's why I hired you to, to deal with this. And, and, you know, I'm a big believer in team morale and, you know, and, and trying to, to do what's possible to make sure the morale is high. People are happy. I, I'm positive that your team probably appreciates that trait you're describing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so, so for me, going back to that analogy, if, you know, somebody's at the one yard line and they're, you know, either unwilling to try or, or don't know how to get started, I find that a challenge that I'm, I'm a lot less equipped to uh, handle. But yeah. 
they can, you know, grind and move it forward 20 yards and then they encounter a problem that they've never encountered before. Um, then I'll work really hard and, and usually do a pretty good job helping them solve those problems and keep the ball moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I want to ask a, a funny question about technology here. So, you know, so you've been a CEO for 23 years. How has the technology that you've relied on changed over that period? You know, like when you start, yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because, um, uh, I am not an early adopter of technology. Um, so generally, uh, uh, you know, it, it takes multiple people telling me there's this tool that's a phenomenal tool and, uh, and it's, you know, helped me be more efficient or, you know, get better outcomes, results, whatever it is. Mm. Um, and I usually need to hear it a couple of times and then I go investigate and, and tend to adopt that thing. Um, so I definitely cannot claim that, that technology um, that I've been on the front, uh, of, of the, you know, frontier for technology and, and therefore using things that, you know, um, yeah. helped me in my role in a considerable way. So my answer to that is a really boring one. I mean, I would simply say that, um, the fact that we hold a computer in our hand, you know, mm-hmm. walk around every day with one of these, that, that is actually a computer and we can do everything with, um, that has helped my life to be a whole lot more flexible because then I can respond to important things um, quickly and easily, regardless of where I am or what I'm doing. Um, and uh, so then again, you know, going very basic, um, I would say, you know, we, we have a, um, we have a, a database that, that uh, at this point in time would be really hard to do without. Um, but I, I just would not say that, 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 technology is very earth shattering. So I think that what I've done that's a little bit more um, cutting edge, I guess, would would have to do with using people to accomplish mm-hmm. certain tasks in a way that's different than than uh, other companies in our industry. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty boring when it comes to the technology side. I, I'd be more likely to ask you, hey, any technology I should know about <laughs> that uh, you think yeah. I should be using? You know, I, so I'm a very practical person. So for me, so one of my weaknesses is used to be personal organization. Now, there are plenty of people who would probably tell you that I'm that's still a weakness of mine. But, you know, they didn't know me years ago when it was truly a weakness. And I remember I used this tool called Remember the Milk. Um, and I would literally just you, I mean, all it is is a is, is a is a to do list. Um, and you know, you could email an item to it and it had certain codes. Like if you put an, sent an email to the tool and you put the word today anywhere in the subject headline, it would create a task that was due today. If you put December 31st, it would create a task that was due December 31st. You'd then get a reminder, which I never used the reminders. All I used it for was this was this chronological to-do list. I loved it. I still love it, but I did stop using it. I stopped using it once my team grew um, because my to-do list shrank tremendously. And so I just didn't need it. But back in the beginning of my career, when I was first starting my company, I bootstrapped my business, you know, I didn't take on any funding. I didn't, you know, it was, I I did another business earlier where I took on capital and and raised a little bit of money in a seed round. And, and, and for my current business, I bootstrapped it. So I was the key employee in the beginning and I had such a big to-do list that was 
it was life changing to find that tool. It's not the most, it's not the craziest technology. It's, you know, it's just a chronological list, but I could, I could log in every day at any point I wanted. I could see it on my phone. That was cool. Um, you know, I'm probably pretty boring in some ways with technology, you know, myself. Um, I do use, you know, I use QuickBooks online. Um, you know, I use, I mean, there are, you know, I use Slack for communication with my team. Um, you know, I use a hand, I, I use a lot of the tools that are kind of trendy, but I don't use them because they're trendy. I mean, I use them, you know, because they solve a real challenge. Um, you know, but I guess it's, it's tough to, to even talk about today because we're all using technology. I mean, we're using video conferencing software right now. We're using podcasting software to do this. Um, here's a, here's a, a, a different question. If you didn't have a computer and you had a phone with a great internet connection, could you run your whole business? Do you think? Hmm. I do a substantial amount of work via email today. Yeah. Substantial. So, uh, and, and, you know, this is obviously different than 23 years ago when I did yeah. virtually, you know, very, very little, little to nothing. Um, that would take quite an adjustment. <laughs> yeah, um, I bet it would. That would not would. be an easy turn for me. Yeah. I've been thinking more and more that I am actually somewhat close to being able to use my phone for everything. Um, there have been a couple days where I have, um, where I've tried that. And, and the interesting thing is it's pretty close, you know, it's pretty, because I, again, now I've got QuickBooks online. I've got, you know, I've, most of my, most of my stuff is available by phone. It is not as convenient as the computer. So I don't, I'm not saying that I would prefer that, but I, as an experiment, I've tried that a few times and you know, you can get pretty close to, to doing everything from, from a phone, in my opinion. Um, now I don't know. By the way, I misunderstood your question. I thought you meant like, even though you said internet connection, I didn't pick up on what you meant. I thought you meant a phone, but like you can't send email, you can't go to websites. No, so no, 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 no. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I get it. What you say. Phone as the computer. Yes, yes. Phone as the computer. Do do whatever you want on the phone. Yeah. So um, I absolutely could do it. It would slow me way down because okay. I handle. I feel like I handle some sometimes complex concepts via email and that would take me a really long time to write on my phone. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for example, um, when I'm forced to do something by phone, I'm almost like, well, then I'll just do it another, a different day. If it's a mm. complex thing I need to handle, like if I need to write an email, that's not like five words. Um, yeah. uh, I'll often just delay and do it when I'm going to be back by a computer or whatever. Yeah. Um, but certainly, I, I would guess that, that, you know, people below a certain age group would be like, what are you talking about? I, my computer's collecting dust right now. This is, yeah. this is my computer and I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, yeah, I think I, yeah, I think we're, we're getting to that now in my business. We do, I don't do a lot in Excel anymore. I do some stuff. I probably one day a week I'm in Excel fairly heavily and, you know, that has not been replicated yet on a phone in a way that's convenient. And I mean, that would take forever to use the Excel versions that are available on a phone, you know. Um, so in my industry, you know, that that's a factor. But there aren't too many other things like that that are that are so phone oriented. 
um, or there, I'm sorry, that are so that, that, that need to be done on a desktop machine. But, but yeah, so I, I think we're, we're getting there. We're get, we're getting to a point where, where, you know, and certainly for some jobs like customer service and, and various other things where, you know, you can, you can do a lot. And, and I've also used voice dictation recently a lot, and it, it's not to the point where I would be comfortable doing voice dictation to, uh, you know, uh, to a client most of the time, I mean, for a long email, because that, you know, you're going to get some embarrassing typos in a mm -hmm. voice message, but you're going to be 99% good, mm -hmm. you know, or maybe 97%. And, and I think that remaining 2% is important because, you know, <laughs> you know, you don't want, you know, if 2% of your words are, are completely off, then you're going to look kind of foolish. Mm -hmm. But once, once they get that other 2%, that's going to be a big step forward. Mm -hmm. so, Absolutely. So, um, all right. So I want to uh, uh, ask you a tough question about, you know, and this is a little bit, little bit open-ended, but how have you changed as a CEO? Like what, what would you, if we met you 23 years ago when you were first starting as CEO, you know, how would you be different than when we meet you today? And, and, the, and the point of view maybe to start with could be like somebody on your team. Like if you, if you hired me, 23 years ago and and I was, you know, a, a new member of the CMI careers team, what would you be like then compared to now? Hmm. Uh, so I, I was a lot more intense at that time. Um, and, uh, that, that had pluses and minuses. Um, and, uh, um, I would say I, I worked a whole lot more hours than I do now because I wasn't married, you know, with any children at that point, which I am now. Um, and so, um, I did have a bit of an expectation that everybody's kind of working around the clock like I am uh, mm -hmm. to some degree at that time. Um, and, uh, and yeah, again, more, more intense, uh, which, which has pluses and minuses. But I would say that um, one of the biggest differences is if you ask me at that time, like, where do I see myself in the business in five years yeah. then versus now, um, I'd have, you know, uh, different versions of a successful outcome. So um, at that time, definitely my my entire goal was based around the idea of building a very, very large organization. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really have a why for that. That was, it was, mm. it was like what a lot of people do in a lot of areas of life, but I'm going to stick with my expertise, which is career. A lot of people think they should go into management just because like, well, that's what you do and that's what you're supposed to do, right? And they don't have a really good why or like, is that okay. really for me and what have you? Um, and I didn't have a really good why, or is that for me? And why would that be important or valuable to me or whatever? So, but I would definitely would have told you, I want to have, you know, an employee, sorry, a, a company with an employee count of a thousand plus people in five mm -hmm. years. And we want to be doing this, 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 and this, and all these different markets and so on versus now I would say, um, Sure, I would like to see some growth in the way of uh, employee size, but I'm much more concerned with the the degree of success with each individual within the organization. Mm. And, and I'd like to see each person within the organization, their success um, mm. uh, significantly increased over the course of three to five years. And mm. as that relates to um, successful outcomes and as it relates to their own compensation, um, you know, I guess all measures of success. Uh, in that way. So much more dedicated to um, the success of the individual team than I am saying like our success is defined by how much we've grown as an organization. Interesting. Uh, uh, you know, so 
I guess the, the forward looking picture uh, is very different from 20 something years ago. Interesting. Interesting. So, um, and, and so you said that you didn't have the why for your goals before as much, you know, you were, you know, you wanted bigger, you wanted, you know, kind of, you know, you want, you wanted to grow your company, um, but you didn't attach a why to that. And then over time you, you know, it sounds like you really took a more people oriented kind of approach, you know, where you really focused on the, the individual success of each member of the team and, and maybe, and then that ultimately, you know, Lee, you know, if every member of the team is doing well and growing, then the overall company is growing too. Is that kind of the attitude? Yeah. And, and I guess the point is I, I would have, I would have measured back then our success three to five years in the future by how much have we grown employee size and revenue of the business. Okay. Right. And now I would measure the success in mm. three to five years of the success of the individuals in my company today. I um, think. How are they doing? Are they doing significantly better than, you know, in three to five years than they are today? If so, that's a super successful outcome. And the same goes for me personally, right? I'm, I'm a player coach in my situation, which means that I, I both, um, I perform searches for customers mm -hmm. as of today, mm -hmm. I'm still performing searches for customers myself, as well as, uh, you know, trying to support and, uh, and, uh, yeah, support a team to be as successful as possible. And so, um, so I'm not going to judge at all the, the, uh, success of myself or the organization based on employee count five years from now. I'll put it that yeah, way. Yeah, that, that's great. So how did you, or how would you advise people to think about the why? You know what I mean? Like, like, and this is something I've thought about a lot. I can't say I'm an expert on it, but it's, it's, it always intrigues me when somebody brings up, you know, the why when they're talking about goals. Cause I mean, obviously how, I mean, that's the most, that's the key right there. I mean, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to take a crack at this, even though, you know, I'm not Tony Robbins and I don't do this for a living, but uh, um, or Simon Sinek, I think is the guy who try. Power yeah. why or whatever it's called. Um, but, uh, but I think from, from my point of view, it's like, if you, per, you know, picture what you think to yourself right now is the successful outcome five years in the future, whatever it is and you say that that is the outcome that I want, then picture yourself there and say, you know, why does that make me happy, right? And so mm -hmm. if it makes you happy, so, you know, you, you talk to the, the me from 22 years ago, and I would say, well, it makes me happy because like that means I've been really successful, right? Or that means that the, the business has been really successful and I don't stop to think, do I want to be managing a thousand people? Is is that my uh, um, is that my natural uh, path in life? Is to manage as many people as possible? And am I going to be happy by managing this extremely large organization, tons of people? And the answer would be no. But I never would have thought about that before, right? And so now it's like if I think, what if in three to five years our organization is slightly larger? Sure, each individual inside of it is is flourishing, having incredible success, I'm going to be super happy with that situation, right? It's not going to have anything to do with external optics, right? Mm -hmm. People think that that is good uh, or that I'm, you know, successful based on that. Um, it is, you know, genuinely, I'm in a role in a situation that I'm super, uh, uh, super happy with and yeah. 
excited about and I feel really fulfilled. So, you know, that's a, it's a hard thing to do, right? Is, is like when you're picturing your successful outcome, how much of what you're picturing is based on, you know, external optics, right? You know, when you, when you dig in there, are, are you really thinking, well, people are going to think that I'm highly successful, you know, as you peel it back, nobody wants to admit that in the beginning. Right. But is, is that a core piece of what's driving you to want to do this thing? Yeah. And I can certainly tell you that for my goal to be, you know, the organization slightly larger, but each individual is significantly more successful then than they are today. That has nothing to do with external optics, right? Or, or what other people think. Yeah. And when I thought I want to grow this to a thousand person company, unfortunately that had a lot to do with, you know, how I'm going to be perceived. For yeah. Me. I think that's, I think that answer is right on. I mean, I think that's, you know, I, I can't imagine Tony Robbins giving a better, a better answer than that. Um, yeah. You know, the, um, you know, so one thing, and maybe Tony Robbins even said this, um, you know, on, on a slightly different topic, uh, I think I think he was the one who said, um, you know, if you're depressed, if you're not feeling good, you know, the best way you can change that is by doing something for someone else. Um, and I think there is something to that. And it makes me wonder, so you run a bit, a people business, what I would call a people business, you know, it's a, a services business. Um, you know, uh, I run a, a services business, a people business as well. Um, and I wonder if there's something to this as it relates to CEOs of services companies and, and people businesses where we over time really learn to focus on the people who are ultimately who are everything. You know, if I hire somebody for my company, that person is going to be a key player in whether or not my company is successful. You know, and and I think other CEOs of, of services businesses like ours could probably relate to that. For, for anybody who's not relating to that, you know, a product company sells a product and that product, you know, if you're Microsoft, you sell software all day long and, and people and customers interact with the software that they buy and they get mad if there's a bug and they, you know, and, and, and that's, that's the key thing that makes people happy with Microsoft. If you're, you know, talking to CMI careers or the Will Marlowe agency, you know, there's no software, there's no product, it's the people. And, mm -hmm. and if the people do a great job, then, then, the, the, then people say, oh, well, CMI careers is amazing. If the mm -hmm. people wouldn't, didn't do a great job, they wouldn't say that. Uh, do you think there's anything to this, to the, to the fact that you're a, a people company CEO that you then have over time started focusing more on those people outcomes? And, you know, Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, cause uh, you know, you bring up, you put it in a way I hadn't quite thought of before and, and it's making me realize that like, um, you know, it's not a hundred percent, this is obviously not a hundred percent altruistic from my part where it's like, all I want is great for other people. It's like deep down, you know, that when you run a services mm -hmm. organization, the more successful the people on your team and happier they are, um, those, those yeah. two things combined, um, your organization is going to be more successful, um, especially over time. Yeah. And so, um, I think that, that you're also onto something with the whole like product company part where, you know, if a really good person leaves a services organization, that's a vacuum and they leave, mm -hmm. period, end of story, yeah. right? If a really good person, a developer of Microsoft leaves Microsoft, 
the code that they did along the way stays with Microsoft. That's right. So there's a permanent footprint of the, the you know, uh, good work that they did. And so I, I think it, it does automatically make a services-based business, um, you know, appreciate and uh, appreciate team members' contributions more, um, the, the value of them being successful and happy, it, it forces you to appreciate it more. That doesn't mean there's not, you know, software company CEOs that, yeah. are, that are, you know, more dedicated to that than you and I, but, but I would say that the businesses yeah. that we are in, um, being services related, um, make that a little bit more automatic, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So was there ever a time when you wanted to quit? Was there anything anything come come up that made you think you know what I'm going to pack it in, and and did you did you overcome that? So I don't think there was ever a time that I I wanted to quit uh, in the in the uh, the more the most traditional sense. Um, there would definitely be multiple times where I thought like boy this would be a lot easier to just like uh, be by myself, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? like, um, yeah, and, and not have a single team member. Um, that has gone through my head in some of the very toughest of times. Um, but I would say, uh, luckily for me, the, the toughest environment that I found myself in from a business context was in 2002. Mm. And I was young. I was in my mid-20s, I think, uh, mid to late 20s. Um, so I still had tons of energy. Um, and I wasn't married, didn't have any children, so I didn't have any obligations. So the very, the, the thing that was, would have been, could have been the very toughest thing for me to go through. And it was extremely tough, um, came at a time that was, uh, very fortunate. So it, it just didn't, you know, I was able to ride through that a lot more easily. And I, and I remember it like it was yesterday because I was, I was slamming my head against the wall, working as hard as I could to push back against a recession that was not just a recession, but it was a technology and dot-com centric recession. And that's exactly who all of our customers were. Um, so it was an extremely difficult time. Um, but I, I feel like maybe the reason why I never came close to thinking about, you know, giving it up or quitting or whatever is because, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I had the youth and I didn't have the obligations that I have today yeah. that might've made my head go in some, some other direction. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so two, yeah, 2002, the dot com bubble had burst. And yeah, that would have been a, a tremendously difficult time for a company like yours. Cause, cause obviously I'm assuming very few software companies and technology companies would be hiring sales folks. Is that, is that Correct. right? They were all laying off. And then there were, there were, you know, mm. luckily for the overall economy and our society as a whole, there was this massive growth in in the mortgage and real estate related industry at that time. So they were soaking up a lot of those people. Okay. And for a variety of reasons, we didn't we didn't, you know, take a turn into placing mortgage and real estate salespeople. And there's there's a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, it was it was the right move for us not to do that. But it, was, it just took a really long time for yeah. that to settle and then to start growing again. Um, because there was just no little to no growth and little to no hiring for an extremely long period of time in the market that we were in. And, okay. uh, so yeah, very, so, very challenging. So, so step one was, you know, you recognized that you had low overhead, you, you could weather a bad economy. So that's step one. Step two, it sounds like was you made the decision not to pivot to a new industry. You wanted to push through cause you felt like the 
the economy would come back eventually and that the people would start hiring and you kind of you 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 toughed it out to get over the hill is that is that right that's exactly right um i i felt like switching into a new space would be like uh, you know, turning the Titanic, right? And yeah. so is that really going to be worth it? Is this really what yeah. I want and we want as a long-term trajectory change or not? Because if not, and, and if this is what the business that we want to be in long-term, which I did want to be in this yeah. business long-term, I actually really enjoy what I do and like my customers, mm-hmm. both the hiring managers and the candidates, I really enjoy it. So this is the business that I wanted to be in long-term. So it wasn't going to make sense to turn the Titanic for me just to, to get through this temporary period of time. And also, you know, in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, our, our contact base and relationships are exploding during this time. Mm. Everybody's interested in talking because it's so rough out there. And so sure enough, when we came out of that, um, we were in a, a substantially improved position as an organization. We were very small coming out of that. It was, you know, three of us, 10 of us going in and three of us coming out. Um, but, uh, it, it paid dividends for all of us um, after that. And, um, and that, was, that was the worst environment that I've been through, save maybe two to three months of the right after uh, COVID quarantines began. Okay, sure. um, and, and so and that really, really tough period of time was a lot shorter than mm-hmm. the 2002, which felt more like an 18 month period of uh, difficulty. I love stories like that. So have you ever heard of the concept of the dip from Seth Godin? Mm-mm. Okay. So he, so he wrote a book, I think it was called the dip maybe. And his, and it was interesting. Basically he said that all the best things in life come after the dip. You know, if you, any, you know, if you, if you start a business, everybody's excited, everything's fun. All, you know, it's easy to get your first client, everything. And you're just riding this, this wave upward. Um, but then inevitably things get difficult. You hire people, you do, you know, the same thing with learning an instrument or doing, doing all kinds of skills. You know, most people, as soon as they hit that dip, which would be the recession in 2002, in this case, you know, they would quit. And then, but I would imagine you came out of the recession, you probably had fewer competitors, you had a bigger database, as you said, you know, and, and so it paid dividends um, you know, as soon as, as soon as that tough period was over. So I, I love, I love those types of stories. Uh, yeah. That, that's making me want to to read about that from Seth Godin. And I've heard of his book. I think he wrote the Purple Cow, right? He did. Yeah. So yeah, I know him. Awesome uh, author and uh, yeah. makes me want to read about it. Cause it's, it's very true. And, and, you know, what obviously everybody would agree is really difficult is recognizing the difference between a dip and then you're going to come out of it versus like this is going to be a permanent downtrend in this industry. Like when, you know, cars came around to the, you know, people who made horseshoes or whatever. Um, and it's, it's just, it's not always going to be easy and straightforward to, to understand the difference between A and B, but when it is a dip, it's going to pay dividends just yeah. as he said, to, to go through that and come out of it. When you're doing your, you know, recruiting videos, you're, you know, you find when you're relaxed, maybe a bit distracted, your best work comes forward. Do you find that with anything else when you're, you know, in your role as CEO, like anything, anything else where you try to achieve that? The closest thing I can think of is if I have to have a, uh, a conversation that is um, going to be thorny uh, and, and going to be difficult and, you know, I, I have good reason to believe that that, you know, someone's going to be not 
not thrilled with the information I'm passing along. Um, that uh, I find those conversations to be, I am more effective taking those calls in the car. Interesting. So once again, distracted by other things. Well, um, and, and maybe that's a similar kind of yeah toning down, relaxing. You know what's what's really interesting. Um, what was really interesting for me is when I started the very first videos, and I still have them. The very first video that I ever made. And, uh, and as Rob loves to tell me, it was terrible. But uh, the very first one that I ever made, I was super stuffy and like not natural and certainly not relaxed. And, um, and what it reminds me of in retrospect is when I've hired people who are recruiting, so they're calling candidates, you know, to try to talk yeah. to them about their careers and talk to them about jobs and opportunities and working with us and that kind of thing. And they go from being everybody who we hire is like relatively natural with interactions. Yeah. And they go from being this relatively natural interactor to like their voice changes and like everything becomes like stuffier and more like official and formal. And it, it works way worse. Right. And so I remember telling a bunch of people that I've hired, you need to talk to these people the same way you would talk to your friend. Now, I don't mean you include curse words and you don't talk about inappropriate yeah. stuff. But I mean, the tone of your voice should sound the way it sounds when you're talking to a friend, right? It should just sound down to earth and, you know, yeah, that, that's the best thing and less formal. And that person is going to um, basically trust, like, and respect you a lot more quickly if that's the case. And now there's some people maybe who talk to their friends just so informally that it would be a bad idea. Um, that's for sure. But that's yeah. not what I have witnessed. What I have witnessed is that the challenge is the opposite. They're, they're too stuffy and they need to go yeah. to the same way they talk to their friends. So I realized that for me, I was doing the same thing when it came to videos. And, oh. and it was the first time too that I realized like, wow, it's not as easy. I looked at these people who I hired and I'm telling them, talk to these people like you talk to your friends. And I'm thinking, that's so easy. Why can't you just do that? Like talk to yeah. Right. And then it's so hard for me when I'm on camera. I'm like, now I get it. Now I know what people have gone, you know, been going through this whole time. That's, that's fascinating. And, you know, there's a counterpart to that in my business because I'm, you know, client services is, is really, you know, a, I mean, my clients are very long term clients. And so we have account managers, obviously. And so, you know, in, in some cases, you know, it is, you know, you know, on the one hand, you know, there's sort of a, an art or a craft to being able to keep the conversation moving towards, you know, you know, you know, so that it's goal oriented. And yet at the same time, you don't want to just sit there and read off, you know, uh, you know, a progression of, OK, well, here are the clicks, here are the impressions here. Are, I mean, some there's a place for that. But, mm -hmm. you know, there there is a bit of a, you know, the best account managers are the ones that can, you know, have a good time, relax, you know, become friends. And and but still not waste time and guide things from from, you know, from point A to point B mm -hmm. moving towards a goal. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I just uh, experienced I just signed up for um, this this uh, program that basically will like kind of manage the distribution of those videos for you. They have uh, multiple people who are um, kind of part of the onboarding process. Yeah. And you can see dramatic differences in one personality to the next of exactly what I just mentioned to you. Uh, the one who is clearly talking to me in a way that they do not talk to their friends and family that way. There's no yeah. way that this is how they sound when they're sitting around with friends or with family. And then another one who sounds absolutely like 
they do when they're sitting around with friends and family. Now, the good news is both of them are trying to get to the goal. Both of both of them are, are okay. definitely um, uh, pushing towards the, the desired outcome. Um, but one of them feels like a very, you know, uh, business uh, conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've got a word in mind, but I don't want to I don't want to, you know, sound too negative about it. But but like. For sure, if it was like now, if I'm going to choose, I have to have ten more conversations. I'd rather yeah. them all be with that person who sounds like they're talking to their friend. I agree. Agree, agree completely. Yeah, it's hard yeah. to articulate sometimes exactly, you know, why and all that. I mean, I mean, it, it may just be because because you know, if somebody's rehearsed, I think there is a bit of a an assumption that it's less trustworthy. I mean, mm-hmm. if it is if it is natural, it's unrehearsed, it's friendly you know, I think that is more trustworthy, you mm-hmm. know, there, you know, by, I mean, may, maybe that's all there is to it. By definition, it's like, you don't have to rehearse because you just know what you're going to talk about. And so therefore, you know, that may just create a level of intimacy that makes things both more enjoyable, but also um, more promising from a professional perspective. I think too, you said more trustworthy and I think more, you know, trust in two ways, right? So um, trustworthy in terms of integrity, obviously. Yeah. So trustworthy in terms of um, uh, kind of likeness, right? So uh, kind of the, the like, trust, respect, right? But I think the trustworthiness in all three of those, let's say, um, yeah. more likely to like, trust, and respect that they actually know what they're doing. If it's more casual, then it feels like, you know, this person knows what they've doing. They've done this many times and um, they know how to get me where I'm supposed to go. You know, yeah, I, I agree completely. And you, this makes me think of another topic that I um, um, I remember from years ago, I read a book uh, and I can't recall who, who it was by, but it was some famous CEO. And he was saying how all the, the world's best CEOs who he knew all prided themselves on their salesmanship ability. You know, they considered themselves salesmen. And then the, the rung down and this is going to be such a leading question now because of the way I'm presenting this here, you know, mm-hmm. like the rung down people, you know, hold sales in contempt, you know, they don't, th- you know, they're not salesmen. They would never call themselves salesmen. So, so according to this guy, the top tier CEOs embrace that they, they think about the things that are required to be a great, you know, maybe they've got all kinds of other great qualities too. You know, maybe they're, you know, he's not necessarily limiting it to sales, but, you know, he did make that point that it, you know, top tier, amazing first class CEOs really carry that, that salesmanship, um, you know, trait, you know, in in a really strong way, you know, and what do you think about that? Do you think that, do you, do you agree with him? Um, You know, it's interesting because I, I think that it's, it's at least my natural tendency. And I don't know if I want to say this about humanity as a whole, but it's, it's uh, um, a little natural to be more impressed by the things that, that you don't have as naturally and less impressed by the things that you can do pretty well yourself. So it's like, you're not impressed by it because you can do it. Right. So, um, so in my mind, it's like, you know, you have the visionaries who like naturally tend to be, um, stronger, you know, salespeople or influencers or whatever, um, because they're visionaries and they're, and they're awesome at creating a vision and a story and, and helping people get excited about moving in a certain direction. Right. But so let's say like the, you know, the visionary, um, and then 
and then the which but there's a lot more to it than that that makes it sound like somebody just like coming up with ideas and running out of the room but i think you know what i mean I do, and, then, yeah. and then there's the operator and and the operator is really getting everybody to move in the right direction at the right time and work together yeah. efficiently to to produce that outcome right yeah that, that you know that is a vision, but that vision, you can't just say it and it becomes reality right now. There's the really difficult path of, and so in my mind, um, you know, most, most leaders and most CEOs are probably more of one and, and, yeah. and less of the other, especially naturally. Right. And then yeah. they, if they're CEOs, they've probably worked hard to try to build whatever the one that they were less naturally strong in. They probably worked hard to try to build that. Um, but so I would guess that, um, you know, CEOs fall into one of those two camps. And so yeah. the CEOs that have a good operator that's acting as either COO or president or some other title or whatever, um, they're probably uh, um, going to be set free to be an awesome visionary and yeah. you know, have really strong sales traits. Um, if they don't have that secondary person who's a really good operator, then um, they might have to be the really good operator, yeah. in which case it's it's uh, it's less likely that they're a natural salesperson in, yeah. in my point of view. But anyways, go ahead. So which one are you? Are you a natural visionary or natural operator? For sure, natural visionary. I'm a yeah. pretty terrible operator. Um, <laughs> but just like I would guess somebody on the opposite yeah. side does, I've just over the years tried to work hard to make myself better, you know, but I've I've gone through like a lot of peaks and valleys with this. Where right now I'm 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 kind of embracing the fact that I'm a, a terrible operator and and trying to make the the organization work despite that. Instead of you know in the past that I would I would you know go to a lot of seminars and training to try yeah. to uh, um, you know boost my my operator capabilities. I th I think this may be why we, we get along so well because I so I've always been most impressed with CEOs who are very self aware, um, and so. You know, for me, I'm I I consider myself the same way. I, I'm I'm on the visionary side. Um, I for a long time have wished I was on the operator side. You know, I want to be a strong operator, um, but I really over learned to embrace the fact that that's not my strength. I hire people who have that strength, and you know, I I have a you know a, a team member who is uh uh you know who really handles that area 10 times better than I ever could. And, you know, it is, uh, you know, a, you know, you could call him a COO and that would probably be the most accurate title. Um, the, you know, and, and that would also, now he does have some visionary, uh, abilities, but for me, I really don't have that operator background, you know, so it doesn't really work both ways. So in any case, I, I think, you know, you encounter a C a CEO who doesn't, understand that about himself or herself, you know, maybe is a bad operator, but doesn't, doesn't deal with it, whatever, for whatever reason, that's a problem. That mm -hmm. is really where you are. You come up, you, you see a, a CEO where, uh, you know, th that's the kind of CEO that I really have a problem with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I hear you. And that, that, you know, they're all benefited from, like you said, self-awareness and that leads to either, you know, probably a combination of hiring people who make up for uh, yeah. the, the things that aren't your strengths, as well as uh, probably trying to work on the things that are not your strengths. Um, but, you know, I, I have to admit, I, I have, um, because I'm not this way, I do have a little bit also, again, this goes back to the whole, because yeah. I don't have this, I'm impressed with it. Yeah. I have 
um, I am in some weird way impressed by the um, CEOs that just think like they cannot make a wrong decision. <laughs> everything, everything that they say and do is absolutely yeah. right. everybody should jump on the, the boat because they're the smartest person on planet earth. And um, that very clearly has some downsides to it, it um, but it also has some upsides. And and I think it's because that's not my natural personality that yeah. in my, in my natural way of handling it that, you know, we're probably all like this, right? I just, I wish I could have like a little bottle of pills for that, that occasionally yeah. like, Hey, I need to be the person who just everything I say is the perfect answer to the problem. And everybody needs to jump on board and do exactly what I'm saying. And don't question it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, 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 I agree. I mean, I, I think that the grass is always greener. You know, we, we definitely gravitate towards that, whether we want to or not, you know, if we see something else that we don't have, you know, there's a, there, there's a fear of missing out in, in also like at work there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, if I, if I could just have like pills of each kind and today I need to be the sympathetic CEO, right? That would be a, that would be a best-selling pill. I'd go into <laughs> business with you on that, on it to sell that. <laughs> we will get this figured out. So, um, We've talked about a lot of things. And one thing I, I, I'm not sure that I asked before was, was there a time when you wanted to give it all up? You, you were sick of being a CEO. You're sick of being sick of the responsibility, sick of the, you know, just sick of the role. Like, did you ever want to to do something different than what you're doing today in a, in a, in a role that was not a CEO? Um, so if we call that like, you know, think of that as internal conflict. I don't think I have had that exact internal yeah. conflict. But I've had one that's that's really similar, which has to do with like size and scale of of the operation. So yeah. I've definitely had internal conflict over. Um, I want to have the biggest organization that I can. Yeah. And do everything I can to grow into that large organization, and then other times where I've thought, oh, I just want to shrink down to like as small as possible and have the the yeah. you know fewest possible headaches. And and you could say that that's almost the same thing, right? That that's almost wanting to. It is almost what I'm doing because it's it's almost like you know quitting this you know leadership of a business and an organization that I'm trying to grow yeah. and scale as fast as possible, and so quitting on that. Um, and so. Uh, so yeah, that, that's been an internal conflict over time. Like I said, right now I happen to be at a phase where, where I'm really kind of embracing the, this is who I am. I'm, I'm yeah. not an operator, which, which leads to, you know, if I were, that would tend to lead naturally to a larger organization, yeah. um, might be, you know, more difficult to, um, kind of figure out some things creatively. I, I think, uh, you know, um, operators might be a little bit more challenged with like figuring out, uh, uh, game-changing ways of of altering your, um, right. your structure to uh, uh, to make a business grow and and keep things exciting, but um, so I wouldn't say that I've I've ever had you know quite that. Although okay, so here's another thing that's as close as possible to that. I guess I've definitely had moments where I'm like, man, it must be nice to just work at IBM and like mm-hmm. you don't you don't really have to make. Yeah any decisions. There's, you don't right. have to deal with anything difficult. You just like, you know, when you punch out for the day, you can just say, I, I am done. And the mothership yeah. should but handle anything. But, but that's more, but, but you'd describe that mainly as like a momentary kind of fantasy, not yeah. something you'd pursue. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember 
20 years ago that I, the, there was times like during the, the peak, and I'm sure you've had this, right? Where the, the majority of time your stress level running your business is like probably like relatively similar. And then you, you yeah. have these short-term peaks. Yes. And so some of those short-term peaks, I can remember seeing being in a restaurant and as the, the waiter is like, you know, taking the order, I'm like, you know, that looks like nice and low stress. <laughs> just ask people what they want to eat. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you there. I, um, yeah, I, I've talked to a lot of CEOs and only once has somebody said to me, yeah, you know, I've, uh, I've got my number. If somebody offers me this number and, and wants me to fold into their company and I'm a cog in their company, I'm taking it. I'm, and I'm going for it and that's it. And it's like, you know, he's got his number, he's ready to do it. He seems like he'd prefer that. That's the, but only once. Um, and you know, and it's interesting because he has a great business. He has, you know, people would be thrilled to have, to have the same kind of business and be CEO of his company. I know. And, um, now he's also done it for a long time. He's been a CEO for probably 30 years and, and he took a big gap in between CEO gigs. And so, you know, maybe he's a little further along, but Every other CEO I've talked to has, you know, it's been similar to your story where it's been, you know, there've been kind of momentary fantasies of, yeah, it would be nice to, to work in the mailroom or to, or to, but you know, you know what I've heard a couple of times, and this is interesting because this exact scenario has come up maybe three times where the fantasy is working in the, the bowels of an airport <laughs> with baggage, just throwing baggage like over a shoulder, you know, and, uh, and, you know, when I heard it once, I thought, and I don't relate to that. I'm not, I don't want to work in an airport, you know, but, um, you know, when I heard it once, I thought, okay, that's interesting. You know, I heard it twice. I'm like, wow, that's, that's, that's kind of, that's a big coincidence. And I heard it a third time. I'm thinking like, are these, is there just like a, a group out there of people that are like, all right, let's think of like the, the job that is the most just, just mindless and they're, and they're focused. Okay. It's, it's gotta be baggage handler at an airport. I don't know. Like, it's like, it's, it's like, that's a, that's a, it's like a well-known fantasy. Of, you know, uh, yeah. I, I have, and, and this is less, less of a, um, a, um, an opinion that, that I attribute to CEOs specifically, but maybe all people in high stress jobs and um, high, high stress, lots of decisions yeah. with the unknown. Um, I think you can ask every one of them, if you, if somebody plunked down X amount of dollars on your, your desk. And so like, you never had to work again, but you're not ready to just sit around watching TV the rest of your life. Yeah. What would you do as a, for fun job? And I find most people have an answer for that right away. I have an answer for that. What's and, that? And so yeah, my mind's not in the bowels of the airport. Mine is actually like renting out jet skis. So being out like near the water. <laughs> That's a good answer. And, you know, you come up and I've got like a, you know, uh, whatever. I've got my paper. Yeah. And I'm like, All right. So how long do you want to ride for? And whatever. And then whenever nobody's riding, I'm just out there riding the jet ski. Right. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm like sitting under a hut, you know, when, uh, when I'm waiting for people to bring them back in or whatever. Yeah. Hands down. Happy to do that job. You know, okay, so I don't, I, I need to put some thought into that job, but if I were to answer it right now, I think, and this is not a fantasy job, but it, it is, it, 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 like in a, in a parallel universe, I could see myself working at an, at an, at a used bookstore. I'm the only employee. Um, and, and I just hang out there all day, 
just kind of have some coffee, just, you know, browse the books, you know, you know, every now and then I, uh, I've thought this fantasy through actually, um, now that I think about it. So I've, I, every, you know, like once a year, I take a trip around the country where I'm, I'm buying up books and, uh, and then I, and then I come back and then the rest of the year I'm just hanging out. That is awesome. Yeah, that's, that, about, yeah. Do you picture that involving a lot of people interaction with people coming in the store or no? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I mean, you gotta sell enough books to keep it going, so that's part of it. But uh, <laughs> but you know, most most of the time, probably not. Yeah. It's not a, you know, my first job, I was working at a place called the Italian Store. The best sandwiches you could ever. I don't know if you've ever been there because we I live. Have, in a, yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Awesome. Yeah, so it's an awesome place. Yeah, we live in, in Northern Virginia. And so it's, you know, most people I think in Northern Virginia have heard of this place. It's now two locations. In any case, independent sandwich shop. The line would go out the door. You know, just, you know, these sandwiches are in high demand. You know, I've made thousands of, of sandwiches at that place when I was when I was 17 years old. Um, you know, this would not be like that. My my used bookstore fantasy would be, you know, somebody'd stroll in, you know, a little bell, little bell would ring. And, uh, and, and, you know, you'd, you'd talk to them for a little bit, you'd tell them if you got a book or not, and, and then they'd be on their way. You know, the common theme, I think, across yeah. all of these is going to be low stress, very little decision, decision making, and especially no decision making that makes a real big impact. It's yeah. like, am I going to have this coffee today or this coffee today? <laughs> now, so, so that all said, what I think really excites me it, when I'm not when I'm not daydreaming about about that 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 bookstore, um, what really excites me is building something. And what I really want to build, and what I have take the most satisfaction in, is having built and building a high growth, high productivity team. Like I love I love that. I really love building almost anything though. Like I love building this podcast. I love building the business. I, earlier on, I liked building the website. You know, you know, there's all kind like I, that's sort of how I relate to the world. So I wonder having that bookstore, I'm pretty sure I would hate it after a couple weeks, a <laughs> day. I don't know. I don't I don't think I would like it. I think I, I like to think about it, but mm -hmm. I just don't think I would like it ultimately. I, I think I think we might make it six months. OK, or it'd be like. Uh, that's it. And then, and then next thing you know, you'd be going like, you know, the way that they're doing this bookstore could be done a lot better. This is crazy. Yeah. Come on. Starters, if we do a, and then if we do B and then if we do C and I need to contact a website person because they can really revamp yeah. the way that they're interacting with their customers through the website. So it'd probably yeah. be a few months before all that stuff just starts naturally popping into your head. Yeah. It starts um, creeping back in and pretty soon, pretty soon you might as well be building a higher growth enterprise. <laughs> that's right. That's Right. Yeah, yep. yeah. You might as well be like, okay, the profit margin on this is not as good. I'm doing the exact same amount of work. Yeah. And yeah. you know, that, that it's, this goes back to the whole, like, you know, operator versus uh, visionary thing is that like, you know, and, and that's why the whole grass is greener thing. I think the operator is going to be constantly saying like, how can we make this train run faster, more efficiently, more productive, more safely, more profitably. Right. Yeah. Um, versus the, I mean, I, I guess the visionaries thinking the same thing, yeah. but, but they might be saying like, well, why does it have to be this train? Maybe That's we need right. a different kind of train and maybe That's we should, right. what about these train tracks and what about the, the companies that, you know, operate the scheduling for the trains and, you know, what about the, you know, things that are being transported on the trains? And so, um, I am more I of that visionary or dreamer or whatever. And so, however, 
however small the thing is, I am, you know, this is where I'm, I'm just like what you just described. I am at my highest level of enthusiasm and work ethic when I'm testing out something new, whether it's big or small. I want to thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm, I'm honored to be on your podcast and look forward to doing this in the future, maybe in reverse someday. Maybe I'll be- well. I, yeah, I'd love to have you back on. I think this, you know, I think a lot of people are going to benefit from from hearing about this. A lot of people, you know, don't understand about what the path is to a, to be a CEO. So there's a lot more we could talk about about you know the how pe- how people choose their career paths. And so I would love to you know have you back on, and we can uh, maybe explore things from a slightly different angle. Awesome. That sounds like a plan.